So we are continuing our study through the book of Hebrews. <clears throat> and last week we did an introduction. Thank you. <clears throat> and we got through the first nine verses of chapter one. <clears throat> and this week we are going to finish chapter one and probably get to chapter two. <clears throat> Well, we'll see if we finish chapter 2 today. <clears throat> so, just a brief review of last week's lesson is that Paul wrote this epistle to the, to the Hebrews <clears throat> shortly before the destruction of Jerusalem. And this epistle taken to heart by the Christian Jews at that time saved them from destruction because up until that time the Christian Jews in Jerusalem were still worshiping in the temple they were still hanging on to many traditions of the Jewish traditions from before the cross and so Paul wrote this letter to help them understand that those things are no longer binding however there's more to the, the epistle of Hebrews than just to the Jews of that day. As you know, the book of Matthew, chapter 24, Jesus talks about the destruction of Jerusalem and the end of the world and ties them into the same prophecy. And Paul essentially does the same thing in the book of Hebrews. So the book of Hebrews was for the Jews of that day, but it's also for God's last day people. <clears throat> Thank you very much. <clears throat> so then we got into chapter 1. <clears throat> and we see that the first three verses <clears throat> describe who Christ is. And those characteristics of Christ in the first three verses are characteristics that will be built upon in the remainder of the book of Hebrews. Number one is that he's creator, that he upholds all things by the word of his power, that he's the express image of the Father, a perfect reproduction of his character, that he purged our sins, so he's our savior and sacrifice. He sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high, so he's our high priest. So all of those things are going to be developed as we go through the book of Hebrews. And we got through verse 9 last week, and we see that Paul has proven that Jesus is clearly God. And the Father is speaking to the Son, and the Father calls the Son God. So that's the, the best evidence that we can have to show that Jesus really is God. If the Father calls Jesus God, what further proof do you need? So that's what we looked at last week. And then we got into verse 9, and we got through about half of that. So this is where we're going to pick things up today. Before we start, though, now that we've done a review, I'd like to have a word of prayer, and then we will get into the rest of our study here. Father in heaven, we thank you for the Sabbath day. We pray for a special blessing as we study your word. We thank you for the book of Hebrews and how it enlightens us for our time. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. And I guess I should um, point out that I will have some of you read verses. We have a microphone in the back, I'll call on some of you. And if you have a question or a comment about what we're going through, um, this is an interactive study as much as possible um, as we go through the book of Hebrews. So we got to verse 9 last week. 
And in verse 8, the father tells the son that he is God and that the principles of his kingdom are based on righteousness. And in verse 9, the father says to the son, Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. So why is it that the principles of Christ's kingdom are based on righteousness? Well, we see that Christ loves righteousness and hates iniquity. And especially here on this earth, he demonstrated those principles. In fact, he hated iniquity so much that he was willing to die on the cross because of his hatred for sin. Now, what's interesting is when you get to Hebrews 12, Paul tells us, look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. And then a couple of verses later, he says, you have not yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin. Which means if you're not resisting sin unto blood, that means that you don't hate sin the way Christ hated sin. But Christ hated iniquity, and he loved righteousness. So chapter 12 is going to bring this concept out again. But Christ shows us here on this earth that it's not just enough to love righteousness. We also need to hate iniquity or sin. And that's how, that's the example or the demonstration that Christ gives to us. And because of that, it says, Therefore God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. This is a significant part of the verse. This is speaking of the Son being anointed with oil by the Father. So the question is, what is this anointing speaking of? And I would like a volunteer to read Psalms chapter 133. Psalms chapter 133, verses 1 and 2. Is there a volunteer that could read Psalms 133, verses 1 and 2? Right back there, okay. Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious ointment upon the head that ran down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard, that went down to the skirts of his garments. Okay. So Psalms 33, 1 and 2. What do we see in verse 1? We see that it's good for brethren to dwell together in unity. What what do we see in verse 2? Right, so we see Aaron being anointed. Who was Aaron? Aaron was the brother of Moses, and what was his role? He was the high priest. So Aaron is being anointed as the high priest, and the verse before that talks about unity. Now, in the New Testament, with respect to Christ, Christ ascended to heaven. after the 40 days and at Pentecost the Bible says that 
the disciples were in one accord in one place. So they were dwelling together in unity. And then the Holy Spirit was poured out upon them. I don't have a whole lot of time to go into this concept now, but the idea is is that when <clears throat> the Holy Spirit was poured out upon the apostles at Pentecost, as they were in unity, at the same time Christ was anointed as high priest in heaven. And Psalms 133 sort of gives us that idea. And Hebrews chapter 1, speaking of the anointing of Christ, is giving us the idea that Christ was anointed for something. And when we get to chapter 3, verse 1, it says that Christ is the apostle and high priest of our profession. So Paul has used chapter 1 and chapter 2 to prove that Jesus is our high priest. And so Hebrews 1, verse 9 is part of proving that point. <clears throat> now, let's see. Let's, I'd like a volunteer now to read um, verses 10 through 12. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 10 through 12. <clears throat> or I'll call on someone if no one raises their hand. Okay, right in here. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 10 through 12. And thou, Lord, in the beginning hast laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of thy hands. They shall perish, but thou remainest, and they shall wax old as doth a garment. And as a vesture shalt thou fold them up, and they shall be changed, but thou art the same, and thy years shall not fail. Okay. So, again, Hebrews 1 is talking about proof that Jesus is God. And what in verse 10 would help us to understand that Jesus really is God? I mean, the Father's already called him God, but what's an attribute here that comes out that shows that he is God? Yeah, he laid the foundation of the earth. Um, the heavens are the works of his hands. So in other words, he is creator. And in Genesis 1, it says, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. So once again, proof that Jesus is God and that he is creator. And what's interesting is it says that what the, the, the heavens and the earth that he has created shall perish. They will wax old as a garment. As a vesture, they shall be folded up. And what this is telling us is that because of sin, the things that God created will ultimately pass away here on this earth. The earth that God created will pass away because of sin. But even though they perish, Jesus will still remain. And he will still be the same, no matter, no matter what happens to this earth. And in Hebrews 13, verse 8, we have the famous verse, Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. So, sort of a chiastic structure there, chapter 1 and chapter 13, this concept that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's always been, and he always will be. And he is God, and he created the earth. And so, <clears throat> to the Jews who are trying to figure out, okay, who was this Jesus? Okay, we believe that he's the Messiah. Paul is saying, look, this Jesus that we're talking about, the Father says he's God. This Jesus who we're talking about, he created the earth, and he, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He always has been, and he always will be. And that's where 
we should be putting our focus not in the temple in Jerusalem. And this was very helpful to the Christian Jews to escape Jerusalem at that time. Then in verse, let's see, let's have a volunteer to read um, verses 13 and 14. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. Over here. But to which of the angels said he at any time, Sit on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool? Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation? Okay. Thank you, Janelle. By the way, good to see you here. Um, So, verse 13. Now, Paul makes a contrast again to Christ and the angels as he did earlier in chapter 1. And this is where we pull more of the book of Hebrews together to understand what this is saying. So, what is Paul saying when he talks about the Father saying to the Son, Sit on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. This is something that the angels clearly cannot do. So this is something that Jesus, the Son, can do. He's sitting on the right hand of God until the enemies of the Son are made his footstool. But the angels can't do that. And you would have to think that whatever this point is, it's going to be further proof of the divinity of Christ. Because chapter 1 is all about proving that Jesus is divine. He is God. So what is it about sitting on the right hand of God till his enemies are made his footstool makes him divine in comparison to the angels? And the answer to that is found in Hebrews chapter 10. Same book, same concept, same author, just a little bit more of an explanation. And if I could have a volunteer read Hebrews chapter 10, verses 12 and 13. Hebrews 10, verses 12 and 13. Right over here. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 12 and 13. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God, from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. Okay, do you see the same concept here? But it's expanded upon. In Hebrews 1, the father doesn't say to the angels, hey, sit on my right hand till your enemies are made your footstool. Um, He says it to the son, and in Hebrews 10, we see, look, after Christ offered a sacrifice for sin, he sat down on the right hand of God. So what does that make Christ? Makes him our sacrifice, which makes him our Savior. Can, our, can the angels be our Savior? No way. But the fact that Christ died for us is further evidence of his divinity. And after he made a sacrifice for sin. He sat down on the right hand of God from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. Now, we're going to talk about this here and we'll talk about it again when we get to Hebrews 10, which will be several weeks from now. So I'm going to talk about it now because repetition deepens impression. What does it mean for Christ's enemies to be made his footstool? Because I thought, well, Actually, I didn't, but some people say 
that when Christ died on the cross, that was the end of everything. So if everything ended when Christ died on the cross, why does he still have enemies that need to be made his footstool and he's going to stay seated until they are made his footstool? If the cross didn't solve that issue. Because Hebrews 10, 12 says, look, he offered a sacrifice for sins forever. That's clearly the cross. And then he went to heaven and sat down until his enemies are made his footstool. So why is he still sitting down? So this is where we use the Bible to help understand this concept, this concept a little further. And we go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And I would like someone to read verses 24 through 27. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 24 through 27. We have a volunteer back here, right there. 1 Corinthians 15, 24 to 27. Then cometh the end, when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. For he hath put all things under his feet. But when he saith, all things are put under him, it is manifest that he is expected, which did put all things under him. Okay. Now do you see a similar concept being described here by the same author, Paul? Okay, so he's going to reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. That's the same thing as his enemies being made his footstool. Here it says his enemies, uh, his enemies are put under his feet. Now, what is the last enemy? And it says here in verse 26, death. Now the question then is, if Jesus died on the cross, and in Hebrews chapter 2, it's interesting if you look at Hebrews chapter 2, um, because Jesus died, he destroyed the power of death. In Hebrews 2.14. But yet, it says that he's going to reign till all of his enemies are put under his feet. And when Christ died on the cross, the, the death, the power of death was destroyed. And yet, the question is, if the power of death was destroyed, why have people continued to die since the cross if Christ destroyed the power of death at the cross? I mean, if he was resurrected, why didn't people just stop dying then and Jesus comes back shortly after his ascension and we're all done? So if you go to verse 55 and 56 of 1 Corinthians 15. I'll read, actually, yeah, 55 through 57. Let's have a volunteer read 1 Corinthians 15. 55 to 57, a volunteer, right over here. What is it that causes death to still be around? O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? 
The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth, giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay. <clears throat> so, the sting of death is what? Sin. Now, when you go to Romans, it's very clear. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. So here's the point. As long as there is sin, there is still death. No more sin, no more death. And what's interesting is, in verse 57 of 1 Corinthians 15, it says, okay, the sting of death is sin, the strength of sin is the law. The law points out what sin is. And then in verse 57, it says, thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And based on the context, the victory that we are given is over sin and death. That's the victory that our Lord Jesus Christ gives us. So Christ, after he offered one sacrifice for sins forever, ascended to heaven where he must reign till all enemies are put under his feet or his enemies are made his footstool. So he's sitting down. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death, which is caused by sin. Now here's an interesting thing to consider. In Daniel chapter 7, verses 9 through 13, we see the concept of the judgment beginning. And when you read those verses, it says, The judgment was set. And the books were open. Or in other versions it says the court was seated and the books were open. Which gives you the idea that at the beginning of the judgment, Jesus who ascended to sit on the right hand of the throne of God was still sitting in 1844 when they moved from the holy place to the most holy place. The judgment begins and Christ is still seated as they begin the judgment. Now, when you get to Daniel 11 and 12 and you get to Daniel chapter 12 verse 1, guess what happens? Michael stands up, which guess what that means? His enemies have been made his footstool. That means there's no more sin and no more death. And if you understand the concept of the close of probation, after the close of probation, none of God's people will die between close of probation and the second coming. And why is that? We're going to study this in the book of Hebrews, but when Christ's enemies are made his footstool, what happens in the sanctuary in heaven is the sins of God's people are blotted out. That's the close of probation, and Michael stands up. And when that happens, the enemies of God are made his footstool. And the reason why is because God has a group of people who no longer have sin in their lives. Why? Because their sins have been blotted out. And we're going to develop this concept through the book of Hebrews that Christ, he's truly God, he's truly man. Because of that, he can be a faithful high priest and help each one of us to have the experience that he had while he lived here on this earth so that he can have a group of people that he can blot out their sins in the judgment so that he can stand up and he will no longer have enemies to be made a a footstool under. So, that's Hebrews chapter 1, verse 13. We're going to develop that concept. And in verse 14, we see that the angels minister to us who shall be heirs of salvation. Now, 
in, earlier in the chapter, we see that Christ is the first begotten of the Father. And we, we studied what that meant last week, that he became the first begotten at the resurrection. You can see that in Acts 13.33. And before he died, he was the only begotten Son of God. But those who are heirs of salvation, that's us, we can become second, third, fourth, fifth, and on begotten of God because Christ died for us. And so this is the good news of the gospel. So that's Hebrews chapter 1 in a nutshell, and we're going to go on to chapter 2. But in a nutshell, Hebrews chapter 1, God speaks to us in these last days, both to the Jews before the destruction of Jerusalem, that was their last days, and to God's people in the last days at the end of the world through his son directly. And his son is God. He is creator, he is our sacrifice and our savior, and he is our high priest who sat down on the right hand of the throne of God. And his characteristics are also such that he loved righteousness and he hated iniquity. And when he has a group of people who love righteousness and hate sin, he will no longer have enemies that are not his footstool. He will then, his enemies will then be made his footstool when he has a group of people that love righteousness and hate iniquity. So that's Hebrews chapter 1. And then we go to chapter 2. And I'd like a volunteer to read verses 1 through 3. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Right down here. Therefore we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord, and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him? Okay. Verses 1 through 3 have some important principles that need to be developed. The first word of chapter 2 is therefore. And we know what that means. It's because, what he's saying is because of what I just said in chapter 1, which is to say because God is speaking to us through his Son, who is also God, in these last days, and his Son is our Creator, our Savior, and our High Priest, if God is speaking to us through Jesus, who has those characteristics, we really need to give more earnest heed to the things that God is telling us. And it reminds us of the verse that says that, that we should not just be hearers of the word only, but doers of the word. To give earnest heed to, th- to the things that God says. Not just to hear. And then it says, lest at any time we should let them slip. And another way to translate that is, lest at any time we should let it drift away or drift by. Or another way to say it is, lest, how does it say, lest we should run out as leaking vessels. And a leaking vessel is something that just slowly drips out. You lose a little bit over time, and before you realize it, You've lost your container of water or whatever it was. Or to drift by something, you're just kind of slowly drifting along, figuring that you're going to 
get things in order and, and take heed to what you've heard at some point. But what Paul is saying here is, look, <clears throat> it's bad to reject something outright. To hear the word of God and say, forget you, God, I don't believe you. That's bad. But for every person that rejects God outright, how many more people neglect God? It's like, you know, I know that God has spoken to us. I know that he's spoken to us through his word. I'll get around to it one of these days. But at this stage of my life, I need to focus on my studies. And then when you get your degree and you get a job, well, at this point in my life, I need to establish my career so that I can support my family. And then when you well, then I need to make money to um, put my kids through college. And when I get to retirement, then I'll, I'll give heed to what the Bible says. And then by the time you get there, your whole life has gone by. And you've neglected and let slip by or let drift by the word of God in your life. How many people do that? How many people, they don't say, oh, I don't believe that Jesus is God. I don't believe that there even is a God. There's some people that say that. But how many more people say, yeah, I believe Jesus died on the cross in 31 AD. I believe he died for my sins. But they hardly know what are the first principles of the oracles of God. And, and Paul rebukes the Hebrews in chapter 5 in a very strong manner for saying, look, it is ridiculous that at this stage, just this close to the destruction of Jerusalem, that I have to write you a letter explaining to you the first principles of the oracles of God. You should be teaching this to the Gentiles right now. And how many of us could it be said the same thing to us? That we have neglected this great salvation that God has given to us in his word. And so there's a warning to us to not neglect or to let slip the things that God says to us. To give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard. And then in verse 2 talks about how if the word spoken by angels was steadfast and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, how shall we escape? Now, what verse 2, the correct translation is, is not that angels, it's not the word of God through angels or by angels, but angels brought a word from the Lord to people and they, under the Holy Spirit, spoke. So that's what this verse is saying. So God has used angels as their ministers of our salvation in chapter 1 for us to understand the things of God. And he's spoken us directly to God. And we've seen that every transgression and disobedience receive a just recompense of reward. There is a judgment to come. And if you break the law and you're unrepentant of it, there is a just recompense for it. And then verse 3, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? And again, notice what Paul is saying here. How are we going to escape? Let's look at the people in the past. Let's look at the Jews Look at your forefathers, he's speaking to the Hebrews. Look at them after they came into the promised land. In many cases, they neglected the salvation of God. And look what happened to them. Eventually, they were carried into captivity into Babylon. And there's other, many other examples that we could use. That's just one. 
how shall we escape if we neglect in the same way that they neglected? And notice the word that he's using. It's neglect. It's not reject. So we neglect God's great salvation. We spend five minutes in the morning in devotions. And then we don't think about God all day long. We watch TV for two hours at night. We might have a five-minute devotion before we go to bed. And God was in our minds for maybe ten minutes all day long. And the things of this world were on our mind the whole day. That's what it means to neglect the great salvation of God. We don't reject God. If you were to ask us, do you believe Jesus died for your sins? Absolutely he did. But is that, does that have a real value in your life? Do you live accordingly? Does Christ's sacrifice for you really mean what it means? Do you live that way? Do people know that about you at work? And so on and so forth. How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord, and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him. Now notice this. It says, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord. Paul is making reference to the beginning of the gospel in the Old Testament. And Genesis 3.15 would fit that description. And then there were those who heard Christ directly. And Paul says, it was confirmed unto us by them that heard him directly when he was here on this earth. Which, by the way, that proves that one of the twelve apostles could not be the author of of Hebrews. Because if one of the twelve apostles was the author of Hebrews, they would say, which was confirmed to me when I heard him when he was here on this earth. Paul wasn't there with Christ when Christ walked this earth, except on the road of Damascus. So those are the first three verses. Paul is imploring his readers, both the Hebrews and us today, do not neglect the great salvation of God. How do we neglect the great salvation of God? To not meditate upon the things of God throughout our daily life. That's fine if you come to church once a week, but if you're only thinking about God 10 minutes a day the other six days, you are neglecting the great salvation of God. And the rhetorical question is, how shall we escape? And the obvious answer is, we shall not escape if we neglect the great salvation So that's the first three verses. I would like um, someone to read verses 4 and 5. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 4 and 5. Or Hebrews chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. Do you mind if I make a comment? Sure, go ahead and make a comment and Um, then you can read the the verse. I just think it's also kind of cool, uh, just from a personal study, how it says that the angels... um, in, in Galatians, it mentions that the angels were played a, a role uh-huh. in the giving of the uh, the ceremonial laws, mm-hmm. and so since the angels played a role in that and mm-hmm. and showing how you know they brought in the first economy through yeah. Moses, now Jesus is bringing the next great economy, yeah. economy and it, that was brought by God. Yeah. So it mm-hmm. kind of builds off the first chapter, yeah. which I think is kind of cool. Yeah, that's so a good point. Gives a lot of punch to this to this portion, mm-hmm. and it says that they mm-hmm. receive just punishment. Yeah. How much more shall we? Exactly. Have good okay. point. um, Verses 4 and 5. God also bearing them, 4 and 5, God also bearing them witness both with signs and wonders and with diverse miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost according to his own will. For unto angels hath he not put in subjection the world to come whereof we speak. Okay. Now, 
In verse 4, Paul is talking about those who heard God through Jesus Christ directly. And God bore witness to these people through signs and wonders, divers miracles, and gifts of the Holy Ghost. And this is a description of the early Christian church. The signs and wonders that were poured out. I mean, think about it. Peter is in prison. An angel comes and delivers him but shortly before he dies. That's a sign and a wonder if I've ever seen one. And the Holy Ghost was poured out in the form of Pentecost upon the early believers. So clearly, God has worked. He's poured out his Holy Spirit. He's given signs and wonders. And so the question is, how can you ignore or neglect the way in which God has worked among his people? And let's go on here. Uh, let me check real quick the time. I don't know how much farther we're going to get. We're, we won't finish chapter 2 today, but that's fine. So now we're going to go to verse 6. And I would like someone to read verses 6 through 8. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 6 through 8. Right down here. <laughs> but, in, but one in a certain place testified, saying, What is man that thou art mindful of him? Or the son of man that thou visitest him? Thou madest him a little lower than the angels. Thou crownest him with glory and honor, and didst set over him the work of thy hands. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we see not, yet all things put under him. Okay. So now, Paul <clears throat> shifts gears a little bit to the subject of man. And He's talking about the creation of man here. And we see in verse 7 that man was made a little lower than the angels. If you look at the marginal reading, it says, a little while inferior to the angels. I mean, that implies, if, if man was made a little while inferior to the angels, that implies that in his glorified state, he would no longer be inferior. And we also see that all things were put in subjection under the feet of man. But then, at the end of the verse, it says, but now we see not yet all things put under him. So what is Paul saying there? Look, when God made man, he was a little lower than the angels. But because of sin... Now, not all things are in subjection under man. When sin entered the world, man lost his subjection over the world, and Satan became the prince of this earth. It's essentially what Paul is saying. Now, it's interesting. Christ then reigns till his enemies are made his footstool. And at the same time, not all things are in subjection under man. So there seems to be a connection there. And what's interesting is in Romans 16, verse 20, it talks about how 
the God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly. That's speaking of man. So through the power of the gospel, there will come a time when Satan will be bruised under the feet of man. The main point here, though, is, is that when God made man, he made him just a little lower than the angels. Man was crowned with glory and honor to reflect the glory of God, to reflect the character of God. But then man sinned, and that messed up the plan. So then guess what happens? We see this in verses 9 and 10. I volunteer to read Hebrews 2, verses 9 and 10. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. Right down here. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. For it became him, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons unto glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. Okay. Now, verse 9, when it says, But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels. Does that remind you of a phrase we just saw a little bit earlier? We saw that man was made a little lower than the angels. So, man sinned, and now Jesus becomes a man. That's powerful. That, and it becomes even more powerful when you think about this is the same Jesus that we talked about in Hebrews 1 who is God, he's creator, and he's our high priest and he, he loved righteousness and hated iniquity. And because he, because he loved righteousness so much and because he hated iniquity so much, he came to this earth to be a human being to save us from sin. So Jesus is made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death. We have a comment right here. And if you could wait for the microphone so we can get this. In Christ, in the book of Hebrews, we're, we're placed with, in the mind's eye a wonderful view of what man has meant to be. Mm -hmm. And we see that in the person of God's Son. Right. And it's from the depths of iniquity that men are exalted through Jesus. Exactly. And I wanted to point that out. Exactly. That's, that's beautiful. So, and that was actually kind of my next point. So Jesus was made a little lower than the angels. And look, he was crowned with glory and honor. And later on it says, he wants to bring many sons unto glory. So Jesus is crowned with glory and honor. And he dies so that we can be brought unto glory. And that was the original purpose for man, is that man was crowned with glory and honor, then he sinned. So then Jesus became a man, he was crowned with glory and honor, and in verse 10, he brings many sons unto glory. So you can see that concept. He was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he by the grace of God should taste death for every man. Now, here's a key point. Jesus became a man so that he could die. And here's a question. When Adam had a sinless nature, could he die? No. Adam was not subject to death because he had not sinned. Now, Christ never sinned. But Christ became subject to death because he took man's fallen nature. And that's what 
Hebrews chapter 2 is teaching us here. Christ was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death. If you have a sinless nature, you're not going to die. But if you have a fallen nature, you can be subject to death. Crowned with glory and honor that he by the grace of God should taste death for every man. And that verse there gives us proof that he tasted death for every man. That's the second death, not just the first death. And then verse 10, for it became him. Oh, I, you know what, we'll, we'll do verse 10 next week. That's fine. I can't explain verse 10 in two minutes. But we're getting into the concept now that Jesus is man. Chapter 1 proved that Jesus is God. And now we're going to show that Jesus is fully and truly man. And with those two characteristics, that qualifies him to be our high priest. And